Hello and welcome to the first episode of California Crime Stories. This podcast is brought to you by a mom and daughter podcasting duo. I'm the daughter. And I'm the mom. And we'll be bringing you true tales of murder and mystery from the Golden State. Some are old, some are new. Some made national news and some were small town stories. But all of them have piqued our interest over the years, and we know that they'll pique yours too. But before we begin our dive into our first case, the disappearance and death of the Yuba County Five, we wanted to talk a little bit about ourselves and why we've started this podcast, seeing as it's our first ever episode. We are lovers of true crime in all its forms, from podcasts and books to documentaries and creepy Wikipedia pages. And our interest in true crime is clearly in our DNA. Mom, you've been a fan of the true crime genre, everything from fatal vision to unsolved mysteries, since way before I was born. But we've been listening to true crime podcasts together since the days of Serial. And even when we were living on opposite sides of the world, we were always sending each other our latest, greatest finds. It's an interest that's brought us together, even more so because it's something that our other family and friends aren't particularly interested in. But why start a podcast about California crime stories? Well, we've lived in California for almost 15 years. We are Californians now in a lot of respects. But there are other things about California that we still don't quite understand. Why do people in California drive 12 hours to get to Disneyland when you could get on a plane? And why do people in California wear flip-flops in jeans weather? Why are the french fries at In-N-Out so bad? We're not judging, but we still wonder about these things. We've also often wondered, as you may have, why California has been home to so many of America's best-known serial killers, and what allowed them to remain so prolific for so long. What is it about this state's unique culture, its politics and geography, that has made it host to so many murders, disappearances, cults, and strange goings-on? Why does so much crazy shit happen here? At the moment, we don't have an answer to any of those questions, but they'll certainly be in the back of our minds as we navigate the Yuba County 5 case and those to come. And maybe we'll all find some answers along the way. One last quick note about research. We want to treat these cases with the seriousness and respect that they deserve. And we can't accomplish that without doing solid research first. It is of vital importance to us that we are both careful in our research and transparent with you, our listeners, about where our information is coming from. Therefore, we will always make our best effort to mention the sources we're drawing from during our conversation and also include them in our episode notes. Now, without further ado, let's begin our discussion of the disappearance and death of the Yuba County Five. On February 24th, 1978, five young men drove 50 miles from Yuba City, California, to Chico to attend a college basketball game. They never returned home. Four days after their disappearance, their car was found abandoned on a snowy mountain road, far from both Chica and Yuba City. They had made a mysterious and inexplicable detour. Three months later, the remains of four of the five men would be found. Forty years later, one man remains missing, and the circumstances behind their disappearance and death remain unknown. 
In researching this story, we drew from newspaper articles published in the weeks and months following the men's disappearance by the LA Times, the Sacramento Bee, and Palm Springs Desert Sun. We also drew from a long-form article published in the Washington Post in July 1978, which is really an essential piece of writing on this case, and a more recent two-part piece published in the Sacramento Bee in 2019. You'll find more information and links to these articles in our show notes. You'll often see the young men at the center of this case referred to as the Yuba County Five. That's because all five men, Ted Weir, Bill Sterling, Jackie Hewitt, Jack Madruga, and Gary Mathias, were from neighboring towns in Yuba County, California. If you're not so familiar with Northern California's geography, Yuba County is at the northern end of California's Central Valley, and it's 55 miles northeast of the capital, Sacramento. The five men were friends and played on the same basketball team. Four of the five men had a learning disability, and the other had been diagnosed with a mental illness. We think it's important to mention this because it would have informed the decisions they made on the night of their disappearance and how they behaved in a stressful situation that differed greatly from their predictable routine and environment. Articles from the period use language to describe their learning disabilities and mental illness that we now consider offensive, so we'll avoid these terms. It was a different time. But before we tell you about what happened to Ted, Bill, Jackie, Jack, and Gary on the night of February 24, 1978, we want to tell you what we know about these young men and the life they lived. At 32 years old, Ted Weir was the oldest of the group. Ted got a kick out of the little things in life, like calling his friend Bill Sterling and reading to him from the newspaper, or sharing goofy names he'd found in the phone book. Ted waved at strangers and felt sad when they didn't wave back. He had worked as a janitor and a snack bar clerk, but later quit because his parents thought that his disability was causing problems for him at work. His disability did on occasion affect his decision-making. Once, when his parents' house caught on fire, he stayed in bed and told his brother to leave him alone because he needed to rest before work the next day. His brother had to drag him from the burning home. Tad's Fred Bill Sterling was 29 years old. Bill attended church regularly and spent a lot of time at the library. He had two twin sisters. Jackie Hewitt was 24 years old. He couldn't read, write, or dial a telephone and he had a speech impediment. But his friend Ted Weir was always there when he needed help. Whenever Jackie needed to make a phone call, Ted would dial the number for him. Jackie did not like being away from home for long periods of time. He lived on a farm with his family and their beagle named Bo. Jack Madruga was a 30-year-old high school graduate and an Army veteran. He had worked as a dishwasher at Sunsweet Growers, a dried fruit company. However, he was laid off a few months before his disappearance. His pride and joy was his car, a 1969 turquoise and white Mercury Montego. Ted, Bill, Jackie, and Jack were inseparable. They had been friends for four years. They had met at Gateway Projects, a center for special needs adults. Several months before their disappearance, Ted, Bill, Jackie, and Jack met Gary Mathias. Like Jack Madruga, Gary was an Army veteran. He was 25 years old, 
and in February 1978, he was working for his stepfather's gardening business. Five years earlier, while Gary was stationed in Germany, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. His mental illness had led him to become violent on occasion, and he had struggled with drug use. He had had several run-ins with police. But for the two years prior to his disappearance, Gary had been taking his medication regularly and managing his mental illness. When he wasn't working or spending time with his four friends, Gary was at home listening to Rolling Stones and Olivia Newton-John records. Before joining the military, Gary had been a singer in a band and played football for Marysville High School. The men were all from Marysville, Yuba City, or Olivehurst, three neighboring towns in Yuba County. All five lived at home with their parents. In their free time, they enjoyed playing basketball together at Gateway Projects. They were proud members of the center's basketball team, the Gateway Gators. In fact, they were scheduled to play a tournament game on the day after their disappearance, Saturday, February 25th. This is an important detail that we'll come back to a bit later. In the newspaper articles written at the time of their disappearance, and even in more recent coverage, much emphasis is made on these young men's learning disabilities, and in Gary Mathias's case, his mental illness. We think it's important to mention these things as we tell the men's story, but we don't want their learning disabilities or mental illness to be the defining element of their identity or their memory. Ted, Bill, Jackie, Jack, and Gary were much more than that. They were young men who had their whole lives ahead of them. They were active in their community, they were loved by their parents and families, and they had jobs, hobbies, and passions. They may have had struggles or low points in their lives, particularly Gary Mathias, but they overcame them and they were extremely important in each other's lives. On the evening of February 24, 1978, Ted, Bill, Jackie, Jack, and Gary drove 50 miles north of Yuba City to attend a basketball game at Chico State. Chico State was playing UC Davis, which was the boys' favorite team. They made the trip in Jack's Mercury Montego. UC Davis won the game. At 10 o'clock, when the game ended, the men pulled out of the parking lot and drove three blocks to a convenience store called Bear's Market. There they bought one Hostess pie, one Langendorf lemon pie, one Snickers bar, one Marathon bar, two Pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk. We can confirm that they made this stop because the wrappers from the snacks they bought were later found in Jack Madruga's car. The store clerk also remembered seeing them because she was in the process of closing the store and was a bit annoyed that they showed up at closing time. After leaving the store, the men got back in their car and drove away. This is the last definitive evidence we have of the men and their whereabouts on the night of Friday, February 24th. At 5 o'clock on Saturday morning, the night after the men's disappearance, Ted Weir's mother awoke to find her son's bed empty. She immediately called Bill Sterling's mother, Juanita, who had been awake since 2 o'clock. Juanita had already called Jack Madruga's mother. Mrs. Weir later called Jackie Hewitt's mother, and Mrs. Weir's daughter-in-law spoke with Gary Mathias's stepfather, who lived down the street. Each parent said the same thing, 
their son had not returned home from Chico. At 8 o'clock on Saturday evening, Mrs. Madruga called the police to report the five men missing. On February 28th, so four days after the boys went to Chico and three days after their parents reported them missing, police found the abandoned Mercury. Now the circumstances in which the car is found are just the first of many things that will puzzle police. The Montego was found on an unpaved, bumpy mountain road parked just at the snow line. This was 70 miles east of Chico, where they had seen the basketball game, and many miles off of the main highway, which would have taken them home. Why, police wondered, would the men have left the car there? The car wasn't out of gas. They had about a quarter tank left. The car wasn't stuck in mud or snow. The tires had evidently spun a bit, but it was clear to police that the men would have been able to push it free. And they didn't have engine trouble. Although the police didn't find the keys in the vehicle, they were able to hotwire the car and saw that it started immediately. One window was rolled down, and the car was unlocked. Inside the car, it seems that the only evidence of note were the food wrappers left behind from the men's stop at Bear's Market. Everything had been eaten, except for half a marathon bar they'd left behind. There were also several maps in the car, folded neatly and apparently unused. If any further evidence was found in the car, that information hasn't been released to the public. So police are wondering, why would the men abandon the car in this particular spot in the middle of a winter night if there weren't any problems with the car? But furthermore, how and why would they drive this far up the road in the first place? As we mentioned before, this section of mountain road was unpaved and full of ruts. Jack Madruga's Mercury Montego was definitely not built for these sorts of conditions. It's wide. It's heavy. It would have been heavier with five good-sized men inside. And it has a low-hanging muffler. And yet, police found the underside was undamaged, and the car hadn't sustained any other damage along the route. It wasn't even very muddy. So at this point, we're faced with two possible scenarios. Either one, Jack Madruga drove his car extremely slowly and carefully up this bumpy mountain road that he's never driven on before, guided only by the light of a half moon. Or two, someone else who may have been familiar with this road and able to anticipate the ruts and twists and turns, was in the car, either driving or perhaps advising the driver. Could there have been six people in the car at this point? I know next to nothing about cars, but I read the advertising booklet for the 1969 Mercury Montego, and based on the photos, it appears that Jack Madruga drove a two-door Montego, which with its bench seats would have seated six people comfortably. But regardless of who was driving and who was in the car at the time that it was abandoned, the keys to the Montego would later be found in Jack Madruga's possession. So for me, this is a real sticking point in the case. When it comes to the car and the keys, I come to this mental roadblock and can't really reason my way around it. Why would Jack Madruga drive his car, his prized possession, up this dark, bumpy mountain road and leave it there 
unlocked, and with the window open. If they ended up on this road by accident, if they were lost, how did they make it so far up the mountain without realizing their mistake? Why didn't they turn around? Unless they were being led somewhere, or they were under duress, or scared, why didn't one of the five men speak up and say, hey guys, this road doesn't look familiar, we're driving up into the mountains, this doesn't seem right. Let's turn around and go back the way we came. Yes, Strack Madruga ended up with the keys. Even so, we cannot assume that he was driving, that the five men were alone in the car, or that they drove to that spot of their own volition. So I think we have to avoid jumping to conclusions about the car, how it was abandoned and by whom, as we try to piece together a narrative of what happened that night. After finding the car, the police continued the search for the five missing men. This was made more difficult by the fact that on the day the car was found, nine inches of snow fell on the mountain and buried all potential evidence of the men and their whereabouts. Still, sheriff's deputies combed the forest on horseback, on snowcats, with dogs, and by helicopter for more than 6,000 combined hours. By this time, both the men's parents and the police were considering the possibility of foul play. A week after their disappearance, Yuba County Undersheriff Jack Beecham stated that, quote, as time goes on, it looks more and more like foul play, close quote. And some family members theorized that perhaps some force made the boys drive up to that spot that night, that perhaps they had seen something that they weren't supposed to see at the basketball game in Chico. But for more than three months, from the end of February through the spring thaw and into the month of June, no evidence was found. On June 4th, a group of motorcyclists were driving by a Forest Service trailer when they noticed a broken window on the trailer and a foul smell emanating from it. When they entered the trailer, they found the body of Ted Weir. He was laying on a bed, covered by eight sheets which had been tucked around his head. He had died of exposure and starvation. He was wearing the striped velour shirt and green pants in which he had left home on February 24th, but his shoes were missing and his feet were badly frostbitten. Curiously, there was a pair of shoes found inside the trailer. They were Gary Mathias's tennis shoes. Had Gary also made it to the trailer? Had Ted and Gary swapped shoes when their frostbitten feet had swollen too large for their own shoes? On a table by the bed, police found a partly melted candle, a nickel ring engraved with Ted's name, his gold necklace, his wallet with money still inside, and a gold Waltham watch, which was missing its crystal. When shown the watch, the men's parents insisted that the watch didn't belong to any of them. The most shocking finding was that, between his disappearance in February and the time of his death, Ted Weir had lost between 80 and 100 pounds. This weight loss, coupled with his beard growth, led police to believe that Weir had survived anywhere between 4 and 13 weeks after the men's disappearance. It was unclear how much time Weir had spent in the Forest Service trailer. 
The trailer had been broken into through that window. No one had built a fire, although there were matches, paper, and wood available in the trailer to do so. There were also heavy clothes that Weir could have put on over his lightweight shirt and pants. In a nearby shed, there was a propane tank that would have provided heat and gas to the trailer had it been turned on. In another shed, there were enough sea rations, dehydrated dinners, and cans of food to have kept all five men alive for a year. But only about 36 of those sea rations had been opened and emptied. One of those sea rations had been opened with an Army-issue P-38 can opener. If you've never seen a P-38 can opener, like me, it's about the size of a razor blade, it folds up, and it has a sharp end that you use to pierce the top of the can. It's been theorized that only Jack Madruga and Gary Mathias, who had both served in the Army, would know how to use this slightly unconventional can opener. The day after Ted Weir's body was discovered in the Forest Service trailer, searchers found the remains of Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling. Their remains had been disturbed by animals. Madruga's body had been dragged to a stream, and Sterling's remains, which at this point were no more than bones, had been scattered over 50 feet of forest floor. Two days later, Jackie Hewitt's father was out with a search party in the area when he himself found his son Jackie's backbone, along with several other bones, Jackie's Levi's, his jacket, and his Get There's platform shoes. Jackie's skull was found the next day. Autopsies revealed that the three men had died from exposure. Authorities called off the search for Gary Mathias on June 19, 1978, almost four months after the men's disappearance. With the exception of his tennis shoes, which were found in the Forest Service trailer beside Ted Weir's body, no trace was ever found of Gary Mathias. At this point, we want to take a moment to talk about the area in which the young men disappeared and were later found. We want to share with you what we know about the terrain and geographically situate all of the points of interest in this case as best we can. But we're working from 40-year-old newspaper articles and police testimony and a single very rudimentary map published in 1978 by the LA Times. Before researching this case, our knowledge of the area didn't extend beyond city names and route numbers. Even with the help of 21st century luxuries like Google Earth and Apple Maps, tracing the men's trip from Chico along windy roads and through dense forests, and plotting the position of their car and remains on a map proved somewhere between difficult and impossible. Still, if you're like us, you need to have a mental picture of what this area looked like and get a sense of how far the men strayed from their planned route. So we'll do our best. Starting from the beginning, on the night of February 24th, the men drove about 50 miles north from the Yuba City area, where they lived, to Chico. They could have made the trip on Highway 99 more or less the whole way, or started on Highway 70, then switched to Highway 149, and then Highway 99. Then they could have made the trip home almost entirely on the highway, just as they had come. But at some point, probably around Oroville, 
That's 25 miles down the road from Chico, so halfway home. They get off of the main highways. They end up on the Oroville-Quincy Highway, which crosses Lake Oroville and snakes up into the Sierra Nevada mountains through the dense Plumas National Forest. A large section of the Oroville-Quincy Highway was unpaved at that time. As they're driving along the Oroville-Quincy Highway, uphill and away from all population centers on an unpaved road, the terrain is going to start to look very different. It was, quote, heavily forested, rough, and mountainous. An article I read from a week after the men's disappearance referred to this area as, quote, some of the roughest terrain in California. When they finally stop at the snow line, they've ascended more than 4,000 feet, driven a total of 70 miles, and ended up almost due east of Chico, when they should have gone south. This cannot simply be a case of a missed exit or wrong turn. After abandoning the car, they likely set off down a path of packed down snow, left behind the day before by a Forest Service snowcat. Straying from this path would have meant trudging through snowdrifts several feet high. Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling made it about 11 miles down this path. Their remains were found on opposite sides of the path. Jackie Hewitt made it further. Ted Weir made it the furthest, walking between 15 and 20 miles down the path before arriving at the Forest Service trailer. But the path itself would likely have been partially buried by the snow that fell on the mountain on the 25th, which would explain the frostbite he suffered. The bodies of Madruga, Sterling, and Hewitt were found several miles away from the trailer. But about a quarter mile northwest of the trailer, searchers found three wool Forest Service blankets and a rusted flashlight by the side of the road. It was unclear how long they had been there, or whether they had been left there by any of the men. As police are trying to put together a timeline of events, they find no evidence that the young men had planned to make this mountain detour rather than driving straight home to Marysville. In fact, they find a lot of evidence to the contrary. For one, the men's parents testified that their sons did not know the road nor the surrounding area. Jack Madruga, Bill Sterling, and Ted Weir had been camping, fishing, and hunting a few times with family and friends. None of them had enjoyed those experiences or wanted to try again. In addition, these men all lived regimented, predictable lives, and with the exception of Gary Mathias, always spent the night at home with their families. So the men were expected that night at home for two reasons. One, because that was standard practice. And two, because, as we mentioned, they were supposed to play in a basketball tournament the following day. The winner of this tournament would spend a free week in Los Angeles. All of the men were very excited and anxious about this game, and none of them wanted to be late. They had laid out their team uniforms before leaving for Chico on Friday. Ted Weir had asked his mother to wash his white high-top sneakers in preparation for the game, and Gary Mathias had repeatedly told his mother not to let him oversleep on game day. But every hour that the men are out on this detour in the forest is another hour that they're not at home resting before the big game. 
So why make that detour? Why not drive back to Marysville as quickly and directly as possible? The boy's story was published in newspapers nationwide, and during their search, police received thousands of tips and leads from all over the country. The men were even cited as far away as Tampa, Florida. Meanwhile, one psychic reported that they had been kidnapped and taken to Arizona and Nevada. Another said that they had been killed at a house in Oroville. All of these potential sightings and theories proved to be dead ends. There was, however, another possible sighting in which police placed quite a bit more credence. A man named Joseph Shones told police that on the evening of February 24th, he drove his Volkswagen Beetle up the same mountain road where Jack Madruga's car would later be found abandoned. It was about 5.30, and Shones had come to check out the snow line and the conditions in the area because he wanted to bring his wife and daughter there that weekend. But his Beetle got stuck in the snow, and as he was trying to get it out, he had a mild heart attack. At this point, his Beetle was stopped 50 yards beyond where the Mercury Montego would later be parked. So Shones got back in his car, turned on the engine and the heater, and rested for several hours. At some point during the night, he was awakened by whistling sounds a little ways down the road. He got out of his car, and in the glare of the vehicle's headlights, he saw what appeared to be a group of men and a woman carrying a baby. They were talking, but when he called to them for help, they stopped talking and turned off the headlights. So Shones lay down in his car again. Sometime later, he was again awakened, this time by flashlight beams outside his car window. And again, when he called for help, the lights went out and he was met with silence. Jones laid down again until his car ran out of gas, at which point he walked eight miles back down the road in the dark. A little ways down the road from his beetle, he passed the Montego, which at that point was already sitting empty in the middle of the road. We have mixed feelings about this sighting and its credibility, and as such, we're going to treat it with a healthy dose of skepticism. According to an LA Times article from early March, Shones himself reported that on that night, he was, quote, half-conscious, semi-lucid, and hallucinating after suffering the heart attack. And it's hard for us to believe that, having heard Shones' cries for help, none of the men would have come to his aid. That just wasn't like them. In fact, Ted Weir and Bill Sterling had once called the police for someone who had overdosed on Valium. Ted Weir's mother reported much the same thing, that Ted would have responded to a call for help had he heard it. So whether or not Joseph Shones saw anything at all that night, we have a hard time believing that he saw the men. We've been thinking ourselves in circles for a little while with this case, trying to develop a theory of what happened to the Yuba County Five that takes into account all that we know to be true and explains the many elements of this case that really defy all logic. But there is something about this case. Every time you come up with what you think is a coherent, airtight theory, then you remember something that just throws a wrench in your whole idea and drops you back at square one. And that's why this case has achieved such mythical status in the true crime world. That's why you see it referred to as the American Dyatlov Pass. It is a puzzle, 
and the answer always eludes you. However, after much circular thinking and many half-baked, half-thought-through ideas, we've come to our own conclusion as to what happened on the night of February 24th, 1978. And we'll share our theory with you and see what you think. But first, we thought we'd unpack a few other theories which have been presented in newspaper articles, Reddit threads, and other podcasts, but which we feel comfortable discarding. The first is the wrong turn theory, which we mentioned before, that at some point during the trip home from Chico, the men made a wrong turn or took the wrong exit, and they drove for miles, probably more than an hour, without making any attempt to turn around. Now, we know that these five men have varying capacities. Some are higher functioning and better equipped to potentially handle being lost on the road than others. But remember, several of them were employed, Jack and Gary had served in the Army, and both Jack and Gary had driver's licenses. And all of their parents let them go to the basketball game knowing that they could be trusted to make the drive safely. So we feel ready to discard this theory because it seems too unlikely that a simple wrong turn would have caused the men to stray so far from the highway that led them home, and then to abandon a perfectly usable car that could still have taken them home. The second theory we're ready to discard is the Forbestown theory. During the investigation, a theory was presented that the men had gotten lost in the woods on their way to Forbestown. Now, Forbestown is about halfway between Chico and Yuba City, and apparently Gary Mathias had some friends who lived there. Perhaps they missed the turnoff, which was known for being easy to miss. But we discover later that these friends hadn't seen Matthias for a year. And why would you drop in on someone you haven't seen in a year after 10 o'clock at night on the night before a really important basketball game? The third theory is one that, despite being a pretty fringe theory, I think, has been presented in both Reddit threads and prominent California newspapers. It is that the events of February 24th, 1978, were part of an elaborate plan by Gary Mathias to murder his four friends. Supporters of this theory point out that Mathias was sort of an outsider in the group. In the Sacramento Bee piece from 2019, Mathias is referred to as, quote, an aberration within the flock, a young man who did not belong with the others. Ted, Jack, Jackie, and Bill had been friends for years, and Gary had only met them a few months before their disappearance. Proponents of this theory also emphasize the fact that Gary Mathias had been violent on several occasions before he started undergoing treatment for schizophrenia. All in all, I think this is a pretty baseless theory. For one, it doesn't jive at all with where Gary Mathias was at that point in his life. For two years, he'd been managing his schizophrenia with medication, and he didn't have any violent episodes during that time. He was working, he was going to gateway projects, and by all accounts was living a healthy, stable life under the close watch of his parents, who he lived with. And what motive could Gary Mathias possibly have had to kill his new friends? But let's say Gary had a motive, and he had a plan to kill his friends on their way home from Chico. He would have had to convince all four men, particularly Jack Madruga since he was driving, to make this detour and drive more than an hour in the wrong direction up a treacherous road. All of this on the night before a big basketball game that none of them wanted to miss. Then, after convincing his friends to stop, 
and get out of the car in the middle of nowhere, Gary would have had to make his way back down the road to safety on foot, and don't forget wearing Ted Weir's shoes or no shoes at all while leaving his friends in the woods to die. And then he would have had to vanish without a trace, despite not having access to his schizophrenia medication. When you think about everything that Gary Mathias would have had to pull off to make that happen, all without a motive, the theory seems, I think, pretty ludicrous. So now that we've discarded these three theories, we're going to tell you how we think things may have gone down on the night of February 24th. First, either at the basketball game or maybe later at Bears Market, someone saw the men and decided to target them. Maybe this someone was interested in Jack's car. Maybe he saw how the men were interacting with each other and thought they would be easy prey. Or maybe, as the parent, men's parents feared, the men saw something that night they weren't supposed to see. The men leave the basketball game, stop at Bear's Market, and are sitting in the car eating their snacks when someone comes up to their car. This person might be masquerading as an authority figure. He may have convinced the men that he needed their help somehow, or he may have had a weapon. So he gets in the passenger seat and either cons them or forces them into driving up the Oroville-Quincy Highway. He must know this road because he tells Jack to go slowly and guides him around the bumps and the ruts. When they reach the snow line, he tells Jack to stop the car and cut the engine and tells everyone to get out of the car. Jack puts the car keys in his pocket. At this point, there may have been a violent confrontation between the men and their attacker. Or maybe the men just took off running in the dark down the packed snow path leading to the Forest Service trailer. The noises and lights that Joseph Schoen saw and heard later that night from his Volkswagen Beetle may have been the attacker or attackers returning to the scene to hotwire the Montego or make sure that the men had gone. Not all of the men made it to the trailer. Jack, Bill, and Jackie fell victim to injury, fatigue, or hypothermia along the way. But Gary and Ted made it, although Ted would have been in bad shape. Gary stayed with Ted in the trailer for a few days to rest and take care of his friend. When he saw that Ted's condition was worsening, he made Ted comfortable, removing his jewelry and wrapping him up in sheets, and took off into the woods in search of help. Like his friends, Gary would never make it to safety. Of course, this is only our theory, and in all likelihood, we'll never know what really happened to Ted, Jack, Bill, Jackie, and Gary on the night of February 24th, 1978. Researching this case put me in a somber mood, because whether it was a case of foul play or just death by misadventure, whatever theory you come up with, you have to think that those men's last hours, days, or weeks were very scary. It's a difficult thing to think about. So this certainly wasn't an easy case for us to start with, but I'm also thankful that we had the opportunity to learn more about the young men at the center of this case and share their stories with you. So that just about wraps up our dive into the mysterious disappearance and death of the Yuba County Five. So we'd like to close with a segment we're calling CCS Recommends, 
where we'll each be sharing with you a movie, book, podcast, recipe, artist, or other cool thing that we're enjoying at the moment. So when my podcast partner reminded me that I needed to submit my CCS Recommends idea, of course my mind went blank and I geeked out for a day or so over it. And then uh, today, which is Sunday, December 20th, uh, I read a special section from today's print version of the New York Times entitled, in big caps, HANG IN THERE, HELP IS ON THE WAY. So their takeaway in this special section of the paper is that, quote, Times are tough now, but the end is in sight. If we hunker down, keep our families safe during the holidays, and monitor our health at home, life will get better in the spring. I wholeheartedly believe this, and we can get through this, y'all. I got onto Redbubble and ordered a bunch of really cool masks for my family to take us into the new year safely and in style. I recommend you do the same, and please, please be safe, everybody. And my recommendation for this episode is something a little bit lighter after this somber fare that we've had. Um, It's a YouTube series called Hot Ones, where celebrities answer questions about their lives and their work while eating progressively spicier chicken wings. Now that might not sound like your cup of tea, it might sound even a little bit gimmicky, but give it a chance. Not only are the host Sean's questions really thoughtful and really unique, but he's also able to cultivate a really easygoing, friendly, natural atmosphere with his guests. And he's interviewed a pretty diverse range of actors, artists, and and personalities from Trevor Noah to Chrissy Teigen to Neil deGrasse Tyson to Billie Eilish and, and many others in between. And somehow all ego and artifice disappears when these celebs are sweating through some super hot chicken wings, burping and chugging milk and being ugly and wishing they had never agreed to do that interview. So check out Hot Ones on YouTube. Um, I think it'll be a pleasant surprise. That's definitely the wholesome content that we need in these trying times. Thanks for tuning in to this first episode of California Crime Stories. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope that it didn't sound like this episode was recorded in the bottom of a well. If it did, we apologize, and we'll do better next time. If you have any questions or feedback for us, or if you want to suggest a case that you think we should cover in a future episode, you can send us an email at feedback at ccspod.com. That's feedback at ccspod.com. We also hope to have a Twitter account up and running soon, where we'll be posting some photos and letting you know about upcoming episodes. California Crime Stories is researched, written, and produced by us, your hosts, with artwork also provided by us. Our theme is Arcadia by Cody Martin. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.